two, uh, two weeks ago, two weeks ago we were introduced to the, uh, the shepherd from Tekoa, the, the prophet Amos, who then in turn introduced us to a lion, a lion that roared and thundered from Jerusalem. That lion turned out to be God, who was about to come upon his people, his chosen people, his privileged people, but this God was about to come upon his people in divine, chilling, sobering judgment. And so this morning, as we work our way through Amos chapters 3, 4, and 5, we're going to discover why this was happening. What had led to this awful day, this day of the ferocious lion, which was nothing like the kind of day that the people of God were expecting, anticipating, or waiting for. This particular day that Amos spoke about was going to wreck their world. Totally wreck their world. And whenever the Bible referred to wherever God spoke about the day of the Lord, this was not the kind of day of the Lord the people expected. And the reasons given by God via Amos were compelling. They were disturbing. And yet they are worth considering by us. And taking on board, because although they were directed towards the people of God almost 3,000 years ago, the issues raised remain totally and forever relevant to us here in this place at this time. So if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Amos uh, chapter 3? And what we're going to do is we're going to start identifying the problems that awaken the lion. And if you look at verses 14 and 15 of Amos chapter 3... You will see, and you're left in no doubt, that judgment is not only imminent, but it's not going to be pleasant. And so Amos talks about how it's going to involve personal distress. Places of worship are going to be wrecked. Plus the people's homes, both their winter homes and their summer homes, are going to be demolished. And the question is, why? Well, I want to give you four reasons. The first is found there in verse 10. It says this. God says this. The people do not know how to do right. Now remember, this is the people of God we're talking about. And the word that Amos uses here, the word for right, means just, honest, and proper. In other words, the people of God had reached a place where they no longer knew how to act justly, honestly. Properly, They had become so complacent, so compromised, so messed up in their faith that not only did they not do what was right, but they actually didn't know how to do what was right. Mistreating others, exploiting the weak, not loving their neighbour had become the norm. Totally desensitised. Consciences shot through and if you look at the second half of verse 10 and I want to read this from the New Living Translation because it's more helpful I feel in capturing what was going on their fortresses that is the people of God's fortresses were filled with wealth taken by theft and violence here we have the people of God deliberately stealing and inflicting pain and suffering on others so that they could line their own pockets 
and accumulate more stuff. They had no clue how to do right. The Ten Commandments, those ten words that had been given by God to enable his people to live together, to relate to one another, to enjoy community, well, they have been ditched long, long ago. Ignored. Trampled all over. And therefore, there is a therefore. Look at verse 11. Therefore, an enemy is coming. See, you do not know how to do right. It's time to face the consequences. This cannot go on indefinitely. Can't continue. How you choose to live your life, how you choose to treat others, really matters to God. And so for us, the question is this. Do we know how to act justly, honestly, and properly? According to God's ways. Are we living the life God has called us to? Or have we got distracted? Have we become preoccupied and compromised by other things? It can still happen. It does still happen. The second reason is found at the beginning of chapter 4. As Amos turns his attention to one particular group within society. To the rich women. Now, the thing about prophets in the Old Testament is they were not always known for being particularly tactful. Or, as we might say, politically correct. And Amos appears to be no exception. And so he describes these rich women as cows. Now, I can't imagine that going down too well. And although the term cow, and some people have said this, although the term cow may not have been as offensive then as it is now, Actually, that's not entirely what Amos did say. Have a look at it. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, you women. The thing is, the cows of Bashan were known as being well-fed, and I'm choosing my words very carefully here, rather large. Okay? And so, and for those of you who have got a new living translation of God's word in front of you, you'll know where I'm going with this. Because what Amos actually says in effect is this, and this is how the NLT translates it. Listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria, you women. Now, (laughs) if that offends you, and there's bound to be someone here offended by that, I apologize. I do apologize. I know I'm laughing. I I do apologize. But I'm only trying to draw attention to the uncomfortable, alarming, and unpopular at times strength and directness of God's word. But again, the critical issue is, why? Why God such strong, in fact, such offensive language? There's got to be a reason. And there is. In fact, there are two. To start with, have a look at the text. These women oppress the poor. They crush the needy, is what it says. They have an excessive standard of life to maintain, and they will do it at the expense of and totally oblivious to the poor and needy in their midst. And we all know how God feels when that happens. Secondly, they insist their husbands serve them. Have a look at verse 1. 
You are always calling to your husbands, bring us another drink. Now, I would love to know what some of you are thinking <laughs> right now. You see, within our culture, that is not such a revolutionary idea. But 8th century BC Israel, that was shocking. And taking all of this and these two things into consideration, what do you discover? And here's the second reason for the lion's roar. These rich women, God's people, have become self-centered and self-obsessed. Intent on pursuing and maintaining a lifestyle that was massively offensive to a holy God. And therefore, look at the text here because the consequences for them are described in extreme terms. It says here, you'll be dragged away with hooks in your noses, with fish hooks through your noses, and you'll be chucked off a high place. That's what it says. Message captures it like this. You will be kicked to kingdom come. And the challenge to us here this morning is who are we living to please and honour and serve? You see, if it is self, if we are living self-centred, self-obsessed lives at the expense of others, then we are on the road to nowhere. And we will ultimately have to face the consequences. But if we live to please, honour and serve a holy God, then we will discover how to enjoy a God-centred, others-orientated life that leads us along a completely different path and towards an entirely alternative final destination. Third reason for the lion's roar. It's found in a phrase that gets repeated five times in the rest of chapter 4. Glance down. Here's the phrase. Yet... You have not returned to me. It's a phrase that speaks volumes. See, there was clearly a determined reluctance to not put things right between the people and their God. In other words, no desire to repent. And unlike the prodigal, there was no coming to their senses. There was no realization with this group of people of how far they'd wandered, how much they'd rebelled. They had absolutely no desire to return home. And it wasn't as if God hadn't encouraged them. Back again, if you look down through these verses, you see that God tried time and time again to persuade his people to come home. So he sent famine, he sent drought, he sent locusts, he sent plagues, he sent wars. He screamed, God screamed to get their attention but they said, no, we're just going to keep our distance, thanks. We're just going to keep walking away. It seems that God went to extreme lengths to maintain or rather to repair this dysfunctional relationship. God longed for reconnection. God longed for intimacy. And yet despite all his persuasion, all his encouragement, all his calling, no response fell in deaf ears. Yet you have not Return to me. And as you read on, we come to another therefore. Choices, consequences. Therefore, prepare to meet your God. Time was up. The opportunity to return home's over. 
Judgment's inevitable. You're about to meet the lion face to face. So where does that leave us? Or at least, what does that force us or invite us to consider seriously? Has God's judgment now been and gone? Is he no longer the judge of all the earth? Well, not according to the rest of Scripture. Just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so it would still appear to await each of us. One out of one people die. One out of one people face judgment. So the question, am I prepared to meet my God? See, God has gone to quite extreme lengths to get my attention. This seems to be one of the most obvious ways, most dramatic ways, that God has screamed to get my attention, to invite me to come home, the cross, and all that that means. Yet, you have not returned to me. So it all appeared hopeless. Or was it? Fourth reason for the lion's roar concerned their worship, which could only be described as false, meaningless, heartless. And God could see right through it. You see, the people of God, even though they didn't know how to do right, and you have been following the series know this. Even though they didn't know how to do right, even though they were self-centered, even though they would not repent and return, they were still engaging in religious ritual. They were still, if you like, showing up at church. They were still ticking, apparently ticking all the right boxes. They were sacrificing. They were tithing. They were observing the appropriate feasts. They were singing the songs. They were assembling together. But all they were doing, it would seem, was going through the motions. This was external worship at its most shocking. On the surface all appeared okay, but there was a mix it up mentality. An almost dualistic approach to life. Get the Sunday go to church stuff done and then live as you like the rest of the week. And God, and, and this is strong, God hated it. I hate says God. I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Their worship was a sham. It was packed with pretense. It might have flowed from their lips, from their wallets, and from their weekly schedules, but it was not inside-out worship. It didn't come from, it didn't flow from, it didn't explode from passionate hearts. It might have looked good, it might have even sounded good, but when you stripped it all back, there was nothing of substance there. Totally empty. And they might have been able to fool one another, but God was not taken in or impressed. See, in the words of a song we do sometimes sing here, God searches much deeper within. Through the way things appear, he's looking into our hearts. And so what does God find? And God couldn't stomach the Israelites' worship because it was insincere. 
And obviously you don't need me to labor the point. And we've kind of made it as we've gone through this Minor Prophet series. But we can sing all the songs we want. We can sing great songs, beautiful songs. We can attend as many meetings, conferences as we like. We can give, we can offer, we can do all we like. But without a heart after God. Without an obedient heart. Without a heart willing to confess sin. Without a heart open to transformation by a holy God. There is this real danger of rank hypocrisy. For the Israelites, God had just become an insignificant other. A passing passing interest. An add-on to life. And therefore God had to speak into their lives with piercing honesty. Four reasons for the lion's roar. So where from here? What about our response? Is it all doom and gloom here, David? And I know I, I said this two weeks ago and, and kind of started out in this series and thought, yeah, this, this will be great to re-look at the, the minor prophets. Now, a lot, a lot of you have really appreciated it, but I must admit, I have found this hard. Because it kind of seems that you're getting up week after week and just hammering everyone. <laughs> and is there no hope? Well, there is. Sad thing is the Israelites didn't get it, but, but God offers it. And here it is, chapter 5, verse 4. This is what God says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Seek me and live. Now, that doesn't mean God is hiding. God isn't playing, never has played an elaborate game of cosmic hide and seek. To seek after God means to go after him, to pursue him, to engage with, to worship with, with all your hearts. And here in Amos 5, what we find is a command and a reward. If you seek me, you will live. And we know from the rest of Scripture that the way we are taught to seek God is we must seek him with all our hearts. And then the promise again from the rest of Scripture, if you seek God with all your hearts, you'll find him. Seek me and live. If you don't, well, the alternative isn't really worth thinking about. And this idea of finding and discovering life in God, real life, is developed from here and it becomes a central theme in the New Testament. It becomes a core message of Jesus. That the life on offer through Jesus, in Jesus, by Jesus, involves much more than simply breathing. That's not what Jesus came to give us. Life, just breath. This is about a hope of having life in all its fullness, eternal life, the quality of life that begins in the present, but a quality of life that never uh, gives up. Not even death can rip it from us. And so for us as we sit here this morning, for those in our community, for those in our society, for those in our world, God still offers life. God still says, seek me and live. God still offers every single human being a depth of life that provides meaning and purpose and hope. There still is a chance to seek him. And how do we do that? How do we find him when we seek him with all our heart? What does it actually mean? Well, it's it's actually very explicit and refreshingly simple. God loved you, me, so much he gave. What do we got to do? Believe in Jesus. And you won't die, but you will have this quality of life called eternal life that starts now. And as I say, never lets up. For the Israelites, I know that Amos chapter 5, their choice was literally life or death. 
Literally, for them, their choice was life or death. And even when they were faced with that stark choice, they decided, no, do you know something? We're not going to seek God. We don't want to live. For us today, the choice still remains as distinct and as sharply defined. Either or. But back to Amos 5, nearly done. Because as God speaks into their lives, he then takes it a bit further. Because he doesn't just say, seek me and live. Although what I'm about to say is connected to that. In verse 4, God says, seek me and live. But in verse 14, he says this, seek good, not evil, that you may live. In other words, there's a moral commitment here. This, if you like, is a strong call to holy living. And for those of us who are Christians this morning, that call to holiness is the call of discipleship. And again, this remains powerfully relevant to us for us today. And so just as we finish, and really quickly, let me give you four aspects of this call to holy living from these verses. The first is this. It's both positive and negative. Seek good. In other words, go after it. But not evil. You've got to turn away from it. Positive, negative. Secondly, This commitment involves actions and emotions. Look at verse 15. Hate evil, love good. In other words, this is head and heart. In your head, you make the choice to seek good. In your heart, you have the desire to love it. In your head, you you decide to avoid evil. In your heart, you nurture a hatred of it. We should never be passive about love and evil. About good and evil, sorry. But what is interesting here is the order these come in. See, it's head, then heart. It's actions, then emotions. And part of what is being stressed here is this. You've got to recognize what you ought to do and then just do it. Even though you may not feel like doing it. Right must be done simply because it is right, not only because we feel led to do it. It involves actions and emotions, but sometimes head, then heart. Not always the way it comes across in Scripture, but here in Amos, that seems to be the emphasis. Thirdly, this call must include a commitment to justice. Look again at verse 15. Hate, evil, love, good, maintain justice in the courts. God calls his people to have a social conscience. You've got to be concerned about the treatment of others in society, especially as we've seen the poor, the weak, the oppressed, the exploited. When Christianity simply becomes about me and my one-to-one relationship with God, when it becomes about me and my personal relationship with God, and that's it. There is something out of sync. Justice for others is vitally important. And as God says a little later on, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. Justice has got to spill out of your life in abundance. Doing the right thing has got to be like a never ending stream. And finally, The pursuit of holiness is not just a way of life. You need to hear me carefully on this next bit. It's a means of life. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you. 
just, just look at the way this is worded. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice. It may be that the Lord will be gracious. And what Amos appears to be saying here is that those who set themselves to live like this, those who are committed to holy living, they will receive true life. They will discover the reality of God's powerful presence day by day. They will enjoy a fresh experience of God's grace. And so as we walk out of here this morning, I hope and pray we will take some of this away and reflect on it a bit more. And consider what is God saying to us as individuals, what's God saying to us as a church, so that instead of hearing the lions roar because we don't know what to do, or we don't know how to do what is right, or because we've become self-centered, self-obsessed, or because we have not returned home, or because our worship is heartless, that instead we will choose to seek God and live, that we will commit ourselves to holy living, which is positive and negative, and involves actions and emotions, which seeks justice, and is a means to life. And may God help us. Let's pray together. Father, again, and I, I know I've been kind of offering this prayer every single time I've spoken in this series, but if there's anything of me that I have shared this morning, may it be quickly forgotten. Uh, but anything that is being taken from, based upon, and comes straight from your word into our lives and into our situation and into our church, then God, I pray that you would uh, implant it deep within our hearts and minds. Help us to go away from here and reflect upon it further. Help us to listen out for what you're saying to us through your word, which remains eternally relevant. So in your mercy, Lord, please hear my prayer. Amen.